Good morning, Restore. Happy almost end of summer. Some of your parents are like, praise Jesus. Um, It went by quick. Uh, So if you're just now joining us this morning, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Restore. Good morning, y'all. It makes me really happy to see y'all's faces. Uh, We're a brand new church that's launching right here uh, in the goof, as they call it. That's Garden Oaks, Oaks Forest, for those of you who did not know. Uh, I actually learned that at a fundraising conference, which was like the weirdest way to learn that. I told them where we were going to start the church. They're like, oh, you're in the goof. And I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) Is that that what you tell me? You don't take me serious? I don't know what that means. Uh, Turns out it stands for Garden Oaks, Oak Forest together. Uh, But we like to say we're North Houston area. Um, we've been exploring the Psalms this morning. So the question we're really asking uh, as we kind of move out of summer, as people travel, as um, we get ready for the fall, we kind of hit this point, right? As as I'm praying and thinking about, like, what do I want for us as a church? What do I want for us as a people? Uh, One of the questions I was asking myself is, in in a year from now, when we look back, what feels like what's are we going to say like this felt healthy for me this felt like i experienced god in new ways like i grew in my affection for him in ways i hadn't thought i could before i grew in affection for other people in ways that i hadn't thought of before like i knew god closely like i knew him closer than i had ever anticipated before and so as i was asking these questions the question that kept kind of coming up in my mind uh, that i wanted to do for us is like define what faith is so we often use that word faith Um, But I think rarely do we actually really think about what is faith, like what does it do like for me? What is it, how does it define who I am? How does it change my life in some kind of way? And so what we're going to do this morning, what I want to do is we've been exploring the Psalms and exploring how the Psalms show us all these different assets or these these aspects uh, or, or these faces of faith, so to speak. Now, none of those, those faces look identical. That's why I love the Psalms, because the Psalms are this, uh, um, like this, this total melting pot of different human experiences that come together. But the question that each of these Psalms that are written, that they're asking is, like, how do I see God? How do I know God? How do I worship God? Okay, so, so your psalms have all kinds of, of, of psalms that are written like with despair, written with all kinds of despondency, written with all kinds of delusions, written with all kinds of frustrations. Uh, and, and all of these psalms, there's all of this, there's so many of the psalms, there's, there's questioning, there's fear, there's anxiety. But if you read the book carefully, right, if we lead each of the psalms kind of back to back to back as we work our way through the book, if we arrive at the end of the psalms, The last five psalms in the book are nothing but praise. This kind of like heartfelt, worshipful, sincere, like soul-anchoring kind of praise. Why I think that's beautiful is when we think of faith, when we think of life, like navigating our life with our faith, our faith, as you probably know, doesn't make life easier. Right, like it's not going to like reduce the amount of problems you have. It's probably not even going to reduce the amount of pain that you experience. But what faith can do is like give us the sustaining, healthy sense of joy, of peace, of despite the fact that this is difficult, despite the fact that I don't know where God is or what He's doing, I am going to be okay. He is good. He sees me. 
and he knows me, and he loves me. And so th that's what I want for us as a church. One of the things that I've shared this with y'all, I haven't been a pastor very long, but one of the things that became just really apparent to me very quickly was like how little sometimes my words can offer comfort for some of the things that y'all carry. Right, some of the pain that you guys have experienced, some of the loneliness that you're processing through, some of the hurt, some of the trauma, some of the pain. And so often I feel like my words actually don't, like, can, what, like I ask, ask myself, like, what kind of comfort can my words actually give for some of the things that I know that you guys carry that weigh so heavy on your shoulders that you guys have walked in here this morning weighing heavy on your shoulders? And so quickly began to realize, like, as a pastor, I can't take those things away. And in most cases, I can't even lessen the sting. But what I can do is try to like, like help us see what, like how faith can bring us through these kinds of moments. And at the end of our life, we can still like keep our soul anchored so that like when the rug feels like it's being pulled out from underneath us, it doesn't necessarily feel like our whole life ends up in this disorienting space where we're on our own, where God's not there, like where there's no like hope for us. And so what the Psalms do, I think beautifully, is they give us a sense of what I would call anchored hope. This, this like anchoring in our soul that settles it. I call it soul, like soul-settling faith. Life is difficult. People are difficult. Relationships are hard. Marriages are tough. Our kids will struggle. And yet what I hope, like what I pray, what I long for, what I want for us just as a church is even in these moments and in these spaces, we would find some soul-settling peace, some soul-settling faith. Because I don't, I don't know how all of this is going to work out. Certainly wouldn't choose this for myself or for somebody that I love. And yet there's this sense that I think God sees and he loves and he cares and he's, my soul is going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. That's what I, that's what, like, that's the kind of faith that I want for us as a church. The kind of faith that, like, it's not cheerful, like, kind of uh, toxic optimism that just says, like, like, the, 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 the the house is literally burning down. And you're like, well, at least it's warmer in here. Like, th that's not what I'm, like, proposing, like, denialism. W what I'm wanting, what I'm hoping for is this kind of faith that keeps our souls settled, keeps them anchored, keeps the presence of God near to us. Like, we know that God is near, and he sees, and he cares. That's the kind of faith that I want for us as a church. And so this morning, we're going to be in another psalm that you guys have probably heard before. Uh, it's Psalms 30, and it has a very famous line, especially if you grew up in church. And I know there's a lot of us around that did not. Um, but some of you may have grown up in church hearing that song, uh, while, there's, while pain lasts the night, at least there's joy in the morning, or in the morning comes joy. That's this psalm. That line was taken out of this psalm. And so what we're going to talk about this morning, as we explore the different aspects of this soul-settling faith, uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is control. This psalm that we're in, Psalm 30, that, 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 that line from that worship song comes from, is comes out of this psalm, and this psalm is a psalm about control. More specifically, this psalm is a psalm where the psalmist essentially says, my life is not in control. Like, I am not in control of my, like, in any kind of way that I thought I would be. 
and yet joy comes in the morning. And so as the psalmist works their way through this idea of, wait a second, there's so many events that will unfold in my life that I didn't want, didn't predict, didn't initiate, wouldn't ask for, yet somehow joy comes in the morning. And so this psalm really is, 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 what I think it is, is an invitation to explore faith, particularly when we are not in control of our lives. And being not in control of our lives, I think, is an invitation to soul-settling faith. And this works very contrary uh, to the way that we're wired. Um, now, and one of the things that's been really obvious to me ever since we launched the church a couple, uh, seven, eight months ago, uh, is like we're, we're in a post-pandemic world. And so by and large, many of us have come to the painful reality that like we are way less control of our lives than we thought we would be. Like, we're just way less control of, like, how the world responds to certain things, how, like, our leaders will respond to certain things. Like, there's just this huge sense of there's a lack of control in my life. And so the question is, when we get to those moments of, you know what, my life has taken a lot of turns I didn't anticipate. I don't know what to do with that. There's a lot of moments in my life that, I ask, did God orchestrate this? Did he bring it about? Does he care? Does he see? I don't know what to do with that. There's moments when we'll, we'll look at um, our relationships. We'll look at work. We'll look at our marriages. We'll look at our kids. And, and you'll realize, man, I just I have way less control over this situation and over this person and over this outcome than I thought I did. That's scary. What do I do with that? Um, this morning, this psalmist, in this psalm in particular, is going to wrestle with that. What do we do when we don't feel like we're in control? And how does that being out of control, uh, like how do we not panic in that moment, but instead be able to respond in faith uh, to being out of control? So um, let me read the psalm for us, and then we'll get started here this morning. It's only 12 verses long. Um, so some are like, yay, we're going to get to lunch on time. Um, 12 verses long, let me read it for us, and then we'll get going this morning. I will exalt you, Lord. This is Psalms 30, starting in verse 1. For you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. That's not a shameless marketing plug, by the way. The word is restored. Uh, You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from failing, falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. Then you turned away from me, and I was shattered. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, What will I gain if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord, 
You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning. Father, this morning as we talk about um, just our lives, like the control that we have or don't have over them, um, would you help us this morning? Would you help me? Um, There are certain sermons I preach where I feel like selfishly I want to preach more to myself. Um, This is probably one of those sermons. Um, Father, sometimes accepting that you have control over my life and that I don't um, is hard. Father, this morning, for those of us who need comfort, would you give us comfort? Would you give us joyful dancing? Father, for those who are mourning, would you change those clothes out for clothes of joy? Would you teach us how to dance in the spaces that we feel most defeated by in our life? We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So as I mentioned, this psalm is about control. It's about this, who's, like, how does my life play out, and what do I do in the moments when it plays out in ways that I don't want? But more than that, this psalm reassures us that even in those spaces that we feel most defeated in, right, the ones that we feel most discouraged by, the ones that we feel most defeated by, are those spaces, I think they're the spaces that God will teach us how to dance. And what I mean by that is, this is what the psalmist is saying here, is those are the spaces often that we feel most demoralized by, the ones that we feel most defeated by, are the spaces where God will bring new life, will restore life, will give us new perspectives, new faith, new trust in him, like new love inside of our hearts, so that those spaces, when we look back at them, they're spaces that no longer seem to control us and demoralize us, but they're spaces where we can learn to dance where we can learn to fall in love with him more deeply. We learn this new kind of peace that he's offering for us there. And so this psalm, like I said, is about control, but ironically enough, it's actually about learning freedom. It's learning um, to let go of our need to control our lives, because here's, here's what happens. Um, I think our need to control our lives often ends up controlling us. And so ironically enough, this psalm is a psalm about finding freedom from our need to control our lives, finding freedom from the control that the need to control has over us. So, so here's, what, here's what I mean by that. Uh, th- the first half um, is the psalmist really coming to the realization that they have built their life on a false foundation. Uh, verse 6. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Uh, so so here, here's, here's what's happening there. The psalmist is coming to, I know it's, it doesn't, it's a little subtle, but what the psalmist is doing in this moment is they're coming to this realization that I've built my life on this false foundation that if I organize everything, if I'm smart enough, if I'm clever enough, if I'm hardworking enough, if I'm, you know, like I marry the right person, I get into the right relationships, I'm working at the right job, like I will be prosperous. My life is in my hands. And so there's this sense when the psalmist writes this that I've made a bunch of good decisions and look where it's landed me. I don't know about the rest of you jokers, but like I've worked hard and I've made the right investments and now like I've ended up in a space where I feel really good about where 
I am. But then verse 7, there's a, tone, there's, a, there's a subtle change in tone. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. Then you turned away from me, and I was shattered. Okay, here, here's what the psalmist is saying. Um, then there was this moment where I realized everything that I had was actually a gift. Everything that I had was actually this, like, result of the goodness of God giving me mercy, like extending grace to me in ways that I didn't even see coming, that I hadn't even anticipated. And so what the psalmist is realizing is, wait, I've actually built my entire life on this false foundation, this false idea that if I'm good enough, if I'm moral enough, if I'm clever enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm spiritual enough, like, I'll end up in the right space. I'll end up in the right, like, I'll end up in circumstances that are desirable for me. And so the reality is, I think, actually, most of us end up in this space. Like, we all have something we feel like, if, we, if I have this, my life is okay. If, if, if my marriage is in this space, if my kid is doing well in this way, like if my job is, like I'm getting the recognition I deserve in my job, if, if, if my, my dad or my mom says the words that I need to hear from them, like then I'm okay. My life is okay. I feel good about myself. The irony in all of this, the psalmist is realizing that I want us to, to, to wrestle with this morning is so many of those things that we tell ourselves, if I could just get this, I'd be okay, often end up controlling us. And so we spend our whole lives chasing after these things, and they, in some ironic way, end up oppressing us. Here's what I mean by that. So, so um, so, you know, I've, I've known through the years, especially in, when I was a counselor in clinical care, so people that, that really wrestle with loneliness. Like, that's their, that's their fears, I'm going to end up alone. But sometimes that, that fear takes over, and they find themselves making compromises that they might never have otherwise made. They find themselves in relationships that they may have otherwise, ever otherwise wanted to enter into. And so ironically, in some kind of way, this fear of ending up alone ends up controlling and dictating their life in ways that they end up also in situations that are hurtful or harmful or uh, discouraging for them. Right, th this, is, this is, I think, actually really true, particularly for a lot of our young professionals. Like, you, you get a job, and you've got this deep need to prove yourself to everyone else, right? And so your job, like, your efforts, like, if I can just kind of work my way up and get the recognition I need, like, I'm going to be okay. The problem or the challenge with that is, is so much of the time we end up on this treadmill running and running and running and running, trying to prove ourselves and prove our worth that we'll be willing to sacrifice our health and our livelihoods and our relationships and even our own personal sense of peace in order to get this space in our career and get the recognition that we feel like, I need this, then I have worth, then I've got value. And so ironically enough, those things, that, those circumstances that we, we need to control end up actually controlling us and like, bringing like, us to even unhealthier spaces 
Like, we, we can do this with money. We can do this with all, like, there, you know, the, 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 there's so many situations where we feel like if I have the right money, then I'm secure. If I know, like, I can pay my mortgage, I've gotten, a, like, a comfortable savings, but then all of a sudden, so many of us can look up and realize we've been a slave to our money for years and years and years, grasping at security. So, so um, I don't know, maybe I overshare from the stage, uh, but part, part of you know, my commitment is I never want to preach a, a verse or a psalm or, or any sermon that I didn't wrestle with this week. And, and this is one of those ones that um, really particularly stuck to me. Like, just, I wrestled with it. I spent, I, I shared a morning meeting this morning as we were praying for you guys and setting up. Like, I just, I spent more time in prayer this week than kind of an average week. And some of that was just wrestling through some of this. So, so as, as, a, as, a, as just as a person, like one of my, my big uh, personal just insecurities, things that I like just, I lose sleep over, I have anxiety over sometimes, is like being misunderstood, right? Like um, I'm the type of guy like in college, like I'll break up with you before you break up with me, right? Like I, if I anticipate things are going to go in a way that I can't control, like I'm going to initiate and make sure that I keep, like, keep the narrative in my court, so to speak, right? Uh, and so, so being, like, understood correctly and not being rejected because I'm misunderstood correctly are, like, big deals to me. Like, they ha- I organize l- my relationships most of my life around these. If I anticipate at some point down the road, you're not going to like me or reject something about me, like, I'm going to be less likely to initiate a relationship with you. And then I became a pastor. <laughs> And I started to realize something. Like, I have very little control over, like, 95% of the relationships in my life anymore. Like, I just, I don't, like, I, like I have very little control over whether I'm understood correctly sometimes, whether I'm judged appropriately sometimes, whether I'm, see, like, seen in the way that I want to sometimes. And so, ironically enough, like, most of my life, particularly as a younger person, like, I would spend so much of my life organizing it around making sure I was accepted properly, accepted in the right ways that felt safe, that felt good, that felt like what I wanted. But ironically enough, because I always told myself that if that, like, then I, then as long as I know that I'm liked and my relationships are settled and and everything's packaged exactly the way that I like, then I'm okay as a person. I, I feel good about myself. I can sleep at night. But one of the things that became like, just apparent to me as I um, prayed through this and kind of wrestled through that this week is like so much of my life, that, that fear has actually controlled me in such a way that I will, like, I miss out on relationships that might have actually been fruitful because I have the anxiety about being rejected later. And so this, this idea that like I will find true freedom, that my soul will find, like will feel settled in, in relationships, as long as I'm accepted, turns out there's not actually a whole lot of freedom there. So all that happens is I got to spend enormous amounts of time managing all my relationships in anticipation of like making sure that I don't get rejected. So one of the things that happened kind of quickly is like just one, like, having to open my mouth with a microphone every week, which is still intimidating, but, like, realizing well, there are going to be moments where I'm just not understood. I'm going to have moments where people are going to misunderstand. I'm going to have moments where people are going to reject me, and I can't do anything about it. And so very earlier on in my pastoral career, like, it's the kind of stuff that would keep me up at night, like, keep me anxious, keep me awake. And then this week, there was this moment where I realized if God's fully accepted me as his child, it's the only acceptance I'll ever need.
when that happens, right, when our faith brings us to this place of God is good and he's all that I need, it frees us so that those fears and that anxiety of whatever it is that controls you, all of a sudden you begin to look at that and you're like, this isn't so bad anymore. I actually have some freedom here. This, the fear doesn't control me in the way that I thought it did. Not, not having the control that I needed, turns out that was kind of ruining my life anyway. Like I was kind of running after it over and over and over again. I don't need that nearly as much as I thought I did. And then you get to the place where the psalmist gets to, where they find that actually even in some of those most defeated spaces, God's teaching me how to joyfully trust him. The psalmist will describe it as dancing, like being clothed with joy. What the psalmist is saying there is, in these spaces that I have felt most defeated and most out of control, now all of a sudden I've realized your goodness, your mercy, your compassion, your love for me is all that ever mattered to begin with. It's the only thing that ever made me secure as a mountain, as the psalmist will say. And friends, this is freedom. This is freedom. This is what the psalmist is saying. These spaces now that I felt most defeated by now have become these spaces of joy because I've learned, like I've seen new levels of freedom. I think one of the biggest fallacies that we just have as people is that lives can be owned or managed. Now, I... There are some ways that this is very obvious in the forms of slavery, right? I can, I can't, you can't own somebody. You can't manage someone. But I actually think we also have this mindset with our own lives as well. I, I own my life. I can manage it properly. Like, I, I know, like, I'm smart enough. I'm wise enough. I'm clever enough that I can, like, I have total authority over my life. And what the psalmist is saying in these moments is, actually, I'd had way less control over it and way less authority over it, way less, like, ability to manage it because I'm way more dependent on God's goodness for it than I had ever, ever anticipated. So, so here's the thing is, as we learn um, about how to let go, uh, it's, it's hard, Right? Like, these moments are terrifying. They're the things that will be disorienting for us because chances are good. So many of us have learned to control as, as a way to survive. I remember uh, some of you uh, Gen Zs probably don't even know what I'm talking about, but Y2K. Uh, you're like, Y2 what? Uh, so basically before Twitter and TikTok and everything else that y'all use now, like, there was a moment where there were just computers and people just kind of used them to, like, manage money. That was really like all they did. Like banks used them. That was it. You could maybe talk your parents into letting you use the, the telephone line to get on the internet and go to the Lego website for a couple of hours. But like really at most that was what you had computers for uh, was banking. And so there was this moment in, I remember in, in 1999 uh, where everyone panicked because they realized, wait, we didn't set the calendars to tell any of the computers that year 2000 was coming. And some of you Gen Z are like, how did you not even like... <laughs> The turn of the century was less than a decade away. Like, nobody thought of it. Like, literally, nobody thought of it. Like, just like, I have no idea what the computer's going to do when it turns 2000. Like, is it going to crash? Is it going to just lose all its memory? Like, there was, uh, I know we have lots of conspiracy theories these days, but that was, like, the first one. Like, people were just losing it over what's going to happen. Uh, and I'm not making this up. I, we actually had some friends uh, who sold everything they had 
everything they had and they bought gold and built a bunker in their backyard and put it all in there and bought guns to like protect it. And those of you who are raised in Texas were like, that's my neighbor. Like, that's not. <laughs> um, what happens in those moments is oftentimes our need to like control everything is born out of this fear of if I don't get it, I'm not okay. But even in that situation, ironically, like taking all of your money and putting it into it, like they were so paranoid about getting robbed that like we just never saw them again. Because literally all they did was like sit in their house with their guns, like waiting for the world to end, which by the way isn't freedom either. And so as we have, as we think about how do I survive, right? Uh, and this is where I want to be really um, gentle, is some of you have had really difficult situations where you've had to learn, I got to keep this part from, from other, like a part of myself, I got to keep this hidden. I've got to be able to respond in this kind of way. I've got to have this level of like financial security to feel good about myself. Right, some of that's from actually like, a deep sense of hardship. Like you've learned to survive. And so, so much of our need for control stems from our fear that we will not survive if we don't have total control. And so one of the things that the psalmist does is they acknowledge that the God has always been the one, God's goodness has always been the thing that has sustained them. And uh, hopefully you guys are beginning to notice a pattern or a theme. All the psalms that we've been in, the psalmist at some point or another appeals to this goodness. Appeals to this, not just like, God, you're really nice. Like, thanks for being such a good guy. It's more or less like, wait, the entire world has been sustained through your goodness, right? Even if I was a little, even as a little baby, I was thrust upon your goodness. Like, I've, I've been, like, I've had to trust this goodness, whether I was old enough to realize it or not. And so in part, what these psalms do is they begin to go back to what do I know to be true about God and his character? And when we do that, the things that have always most defeated us begin to be the spaces that we feel the most joy and freedom from. When he begins to show us you don't have to cling to this to survive anymore because I've got you and I love you and I'm near you. So as we, as we close, this, um, this I think is really evident in the way that Jesus treats Peter um, after Peter denies Jesus three times. So if you don't know the story, it's this moment. Jesus is right before his crucifixion. He's getting ready to die. He knows he's going to die. Peter kind of stands up in this moment and says, Lord, if you're dying, like, I'm going with you. And Jesus says, I, I can I'm tell you the truth. Like, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. And Peter, of course, Adam, like, I haven't, I will never do that to you, Lord. Like, there's this sense of, like, I, I'm brave enough, I'm strong enough, like, I've got it, I'm going with you. And as you know, what happens is at some point, Peter becomes totally and completely overwhelmed and does the very thing he vowed and he promised not to do. I think he did it precisely at the moment when he realized how out of control he really was, that this was really happening and that he might really die alongside Jesus. And there's this man in this moment of which panic. What do I do? I, what I, like, I can't, I have to survive. I've got to keep living. And so he does the thing that he promised Jesus he wouldn't do. And so as Peter meets with Jesus after they've been, after Jesus has uh, been raised from the dead, after he's resurrected, he, Peter encounters the resurrected Jesus. 
And there's this moment that it's easy to miss, um, but one of the things that, that, Peter, that Jesus does for Peter, even in this moment, is, is the first thing he does is he makes him breakfast. Here's the thing. Even when we fail God, even when we have these moments of, I'm not trusting you fully, I haven't been trusting you with my life, I've been making bad decisions because I don't trust you. Um, Jesus' response in that moment isn't to show up and like, well, Peter... make some breakfast. He says, come and eat. Like, sit down with me. But then Jesus tells Peter something that um, I think is very strange, kind of counterintuitive, counterintuitive to us. Jesus tells Peter, you know, when you were young, a young lad, uh, you put your belt on and you clothed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. Now that you're older, you're going to outstretch your hand and others are going to take you to where you don't want to go. And John tells us, Jesus tells Peter this to indicate to Peter what kind of death Peter would die in order to glorify God. Okay, so, so there's a couple of counterintuitive things here. The first is, this: right, most of us think of we have less freedom as children, right? Um, I'm the dad of a two-year-old, which means like 99% of my life is like, like keeping another human being from hurting themselves. Like really like all I do is put perimeters and rules around uh, her. No cookies before dinner. Like, don't run out in the street. Stop pouring that out. Like, just every, like, there's rules for everything, right? So, so counterintuitively, we think that, like, as children, we have less freedom, and then as, as we become adults, we get more of it. We get to, because we start making our own decisions. But I think Jesus actually just told Peter the exact opposite. The older you get, the more you follow me, the more you're going to stretch out your hands, and others are going to guide you to places that you don't want to go. But if you'll follow me, that's what Jesus tells Peter, follow me, you will glorify me. Here's what's happening, right? So at first, and then John tells us, Jesus tells Peter this because he's indicating to Peter the kind of death that he's going to die. And you're like, well, that's, thanks for being the good news bear, Jesus. Like, why would you tell that to Peter? But here's, here's the thing. I want, not, not all of us are called to be martyrs, but here's the thing I want us to to do for a second. It's just put ourselves in Peter's shoes. Peter's wanted nothing more to follow Jesus to his utmost end. Like he loved Jesus that fully and that completely, that whatever it took, even if it was his life, Peter wanted to offer that to Jesus. But in the moment when it mattered most, Peter failed at doing that because he was panicking about not having control. Like he was panicking over being so out of the control of the situation. Imagine the kind of personal defeat that Peter would have lived with the rest of his life if Jesus had just let that be the final word for Peter. Your big failure there, that big moment to trust that I was good and I've got you, you dropped it. Can you imagine? Imagine how different church history would be. So when Jesus tells Peter, hey, you got another shot at this because I've got you, trust me. He's actually speaking to Peter's deepest longing in his heart, okay? Peter's longed for this. Not, Peter doesn't want to die. That's not what I'm saying. But Peter wants to follow Jesus to the utmost end. I think oftentimes our sense of control um, leads us to a sense of failure. Like we feel defeated because so many of the things in our life like just won't go away. Our insecurities, our addictions, our hurts like they just they won't leave us and so we're constantly feeling like we're somewhere between the space of I can't do this and I'm always letting God down 
here's what I want us to hear this morning. God sees even Peter's failure and these deeper longings of his heart. And Peter's deepest longing of his heart was, I want to follow you to the utmost end so that you are glorified. And when Jesus tells Peter, listen, you're going to stretch out your hand. Others will take you to where you don't want to go. This means you will die, but you're going to glorify me. I think what Jesus is really speaking to to Peter is exactly what his heart needed to hear. Trust me. Follow me. Even when you're not out of when you're not in control of your life anymore. So there's, there's something counterintuitive to this, that being out of control of our lives become these gentle invitations to trust God, to trust his goodness. There's a second thing that happens, though, in these moments. They become the spaces, the invitations, where God fulfills these deep longings of our hearts anyway. The deep sense of, for me as I wrestle with, I want to be accepted and I want to be understood. There's been moments, and they've actually really happened, like I'm not, um, where there's this moment of Jesus saying, I have accepted you, and I do understand you. I see the motives of your heart. Like, that's what I want. That's what I want. And it's realizing in those moments the deepest longings of my heart. If I'll really just let go of everything else and trust him and follow him, right? That's how Peter, that's how Jesus finishes his statement to Peter. Follow me. Even those deeper moments of our hearts, those deeper longings become joyful spaces where we learn to dance. Let me pray for us as we close this morning and worship comes up to finish today. Father, we love you. Um, and we need you. Uh, it's so easy to feel like um, when I do everything and I'm clever enough and I'm smart enough and I'm prosperous, like I've been, then I'm everything that I want to be. And then there's moments where that gets taken away from us very quickly and we realize we weren't as in control as we thought we were. And the things we thought we needed um, weren't the things that we actually needed as much as we thought we did. So Jesus, this morning, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, in other ways that we're wrestling with trying to control our lives or the outcome of our lives, whatever it is that we're afraid to hand to you, and I think we're all a little afraid of you, like we're all a little afraid to trust you. We want to tell you how to come into our life, but only if you enter by the right gate and at the right door and in the right way. So this morning, Jesus, for those of us who are wrestling with how do I hand you everything? How do I really trust you? How do I really know I'm going to be okay? Would you help us? We need you, Father. We love you. Would you show us how to love each other? We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.